Welcome to the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Safe podcast. I'm your host, Darla Simpson, coming to you from beautiful North Vancouver, British Columbia, on the traditional lands of the Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Today we have a special bonus episode, an interview with Richard Hall of the Nooksock Nation on the central coast of British Columbia in the Great Bear Rainforest. With over 35 years as a home inspector, both on and off reserve across British Columbia, Richard knew what wasn't working in First Nations housing. Collaborating with building science engineers and architects, he's now taken that knowledge and consolidated it into a residential construction specification guide designed to address the housing challenges of living in a remote, temperate rainforest. Using design principles, Richard is now building homes that are affordable, sustainable, and meet the cultural needs of his community. Richard, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Before we get started, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah. My name is Richard. I'm from Balakula, and I've been working with First Nations housing for 35 years as a builder, inspector, and now a designer. I think the challenge is not only raised the design, it's based on the fact that our people need to be building their own homes. They have to construct these homes to not only suit their economics, but their cultural lifestyle, and also complement the weathering elements, which is wind-driven rain and snow that really have a severe impact on their homes. And that is problematic. If everybody does their part, they can create some economics, create some capacity within the communities, create some jobs, the people, young people, some trades, and that's important. I created this booklet for that work. And I think we're going to get into the, the booklet that you've developed, the best practices booklet. But I think one of the things I love about your work and I really appreciate is how you're very much taking a holistic approach. So you're extraordinarily knowledgeable about buildings and the technologies, but you're also looking at it from a community perspective. What does the community need? What does the community have that they can already contribute? Blending those things. So we talk about the house as a system, but the first system is culture, it's place. And, mm. and I think you do a wonderful job of bringing all that together. In the homes that we have today there, I noticed that a lot of the damages were related to the lifestyle of the first people. So I looked at the options of designing the home to meet the cultural needs. And it was common for me to walk into a home and see that they're boiling water, creating a lot of moisture in the home. And the drywall, the gypsum wallboard, the material they used we're not could not manage that. So I um, incorporated into the design more features to counteract moisture, like using wood on the ceilings to absorb moisture and self-drying naturally, creating proper cross ventilation and understanding that, creating proper heating systems that can manage moisture. So in designing the booklet, which defines the most suitable material that's most manageable for that location. And so this booklet you've developed, it's kind of the culmination of all your years of experience. You've collaborated with other industry professionals, architects, HVAC engineers, building science engineers. In that booklet, you start really with the building science. So can you tell us a little bit more about, in an ideal world, how would you design a home for the West Coast? Well, you have to understand one thing about a home, that it is like a human being. It is like a living being in my mind. In the home, we have three spaces. We have the roof space, we have the living space, and then we have a basement. So about isolating each area and designing it as a space, whether it's conditioned, meaning airtight, 
are unconditioned, where it's allowed to breathe naturally, you have to incorporate that into each space. So the attic space, is, which is the roof area, is designed for one thing, to shed water, but also to manage the influx of heat. And this has to be enhanced by proper ventilation. The living space is one area that conditions, so we have to treat it that way with proper ventilation upper air exchange and incorporate some of the features that do that naturally by applying two windows, undercutting the doors, putting louver closets. This is all to manage humidity and moisture. That's everyday thing on the West Coast. So you do that and you construct it, the home with durable products that's easy to manage. The crawl space is a little bit different space and most crawl spaces are wet, but by Installing the heating system in that space and having an HRV, it conditioned as always a warm space. And we insulate it that way. So that space actually complements the living habitable space above. So I had people come in and help me design that. I needed that certification to design and they did that for me. So I guess in comparison to a standard build where you would maybe have an unconditioned crawl space actively ventilating it, heating it, you're going to prevent those moisture issues from kind of creeping in from the ground level? Yeah, that's correct. That wet space has always be wet unless we manage it properly. And that has an effect above on the living space and everything else about the home. It's actually one of the principal causes of moisture damages, or at least the rot and everything else that comes with that. And then isolating the living space, like the conditioned space, I can see that that's, you know, for comfort, probably for affordability as well. We talked well, a little bit about how the homes that you're looking to design are, are big homes. They're meant to, they're meant to house multiple families, maybe multiple generations. So yeah. having them sectioned off and are each of those spaces conditioned separately? No, they're all, the habitable space, they're all one space as conditioned space. But if we isolate each one of them, they have opportunity to have more different types of contaminants in a room. So we have to ensure there is a positive air circulation, positive ventilation, positive heat exchange at all times. And a lot of the moisture is managed with proper ventilation systems. So if you notice your windows are fogging up and they're gathering moisture, that means that room has reached 100% condensation moisture. It'll start to actually drip on the windows. That means you have saturation already happening. So we have to counteract that. By installing two windows in the bedroom, you can open it and create that cross ventilation to keep that dry. And the habitable space are all conditioned. Each room is conditioned. And like I said, undercutting the doors helps that. It creates an airflow from other rooms. From just walking by a door, you'll feel air go by, and it happens in each room. And you still have mechanical ventilation in your wet rooms, so your kitchen, your bathrooms, but all of that airflow that you're getting through the undercut doors, through the, the louvered closets, that means that you don't have to have any additional ventilation within the space. Like you're, you're just getting good air movement in general. In general, yes. That is an economic approach. I'm not saying that we, we should because your heating system, the heat pump, your HRV is also a ventilation system. Your bathroom fans helps to have the air circulation at all times. Your range hood fan is also good to have. But economically wise, most people cannot afford that type of system. So how do we kind of create a balance in those costs by introducing natural ventilation and education to the tenants of the home? This is why you open your windows. 
this is why the, the doors undercut. This is why we have louvered closets. You know, that's that's a teaching that has to happen. And I think that's a big focus of this podcast is really working with residents to understand why things are designed the way they are, when to use yeah. the kitchen fans, when to open yeah. the windows and kind of balance that because we don't want the energy costs so high that it's unaffordable. We need the home comfortable. And so there's kind of sometimes competing interest. Yeah. And you have to think when you have attic insulation, you know, it's good to have attic insulation to not only keep the heat inside the home, but to keep it out. So the placement of the attic insulation is critical in how you place it. It has to be flush and uniform in all areas. The first row will follow the cords of the truss, which is parallel to the truss. The second row goes to the outside wall and it has to be perpendicular. What we want to prevent is any opportunity for thermal bridging, and that will transfer cold into the habitable space or living space and vice versa. So we want to keep it neutral. And that is a game changer in itself because people really don't understand the attic space, the importance of it. So if you find your home that's getting up to in the middle of August, inside your home is up to 32 degrees Celsius, you have a problem. That means your insulation is not where it's supposed to be at, not rated at the R52. It should be cool, 22 degrees Celsius. And a lot of the heat is escaping and coming through. Those are the triggers and signs. That links really well to something you and I were chatting about earlier, and it's the importance of working with the technicians in your community, building that local understanding and that local skill to really build homes well, to build them for the local climate mm -hmm. in the way that, that makes sense for where you live and the conditions that you're having to manage. Yes, I want to talk a little bit about the building envelope, which is actually the, the siding of the building and what I saw. My hometown introduced building technology, building science, but a normal person or a person today would not understand that this dynamic. So to explain that easy, the wind-driven rain on the west coast of BC hits our building at 90 to 100 miles an hour. And when it hits the siding, it saturates the siding, then saturates the plywood, then saturates the interior part of the structure. So with building science today, we're creating what we call a range screen application. So when the wind-driven rain hits the siding and if it penetrates the siding, it'll drain out the bottom. It'll never hit the actual building paper or the structure itself. That will promote a 100-year life expectancy of your home, providing the details of the building envelope are done very well. And that's a huge game changer for us. Well worth the dollars. And you were saying some of those homes that you've seen built, they're only lasting five to seven years. So this rain screen technology, it gives you more life in your home, more useful years. Yes. My experience with investigation on the west coast of BC, the life expectancy of a home is seven years. And then you have to address the issues that are outcome from the winter rain. And they cost $70,000 for renovation. And that's because the material selected was not suitable for the elements. Today, we're using more durable product like stained wood siding, rain screen details, proper flashings, proper types of windows that have a good seal. So that booklet that I created is a template that kind of says what kind of windows I would suggest. It's up to you to decide what your needs are and how you use this booklet and template. It has a lot of things in the booklet that are developed for your community. 
because this one was focused on the West Coast of BC, but the booklet also addresses the challenges that I saw most first people had. The doors were too narrow for wheelchair accessibility, so I opened the doors to a minimum of two eight for wheelchair accessibility. The costs associated with material to address mold were developed into this booklet. The costs associated for a product. So the cabinets we're using now are wood, not melamine or OSB. They're wood cabinets with proper drainage patterns and they're properly designed and installed. Those things make a difference in the home. One of the things that struck me in our prior conversations was how well you've learned to use the right material for the right climate. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily think wood would be the best on the coast, but the more we've talked, I understand now that wood breathes, that it can absorb and release moisture. And that flexibility mm-hmm. actually is a huge asset, whereas, you know, a vinyl siding doesn't work. So what are some of the yeah. other finishes or products that you've identified as, as really advantageous on the coast? The application of the products is critical. With the mold-resistant board, we used the M2 Tech board. Then we used mold-resistant compound, mold-resistant tape. Other things for the heating system, we designed a heating system that has a heat pump and a forced air system. They complement each other. So I had a heat designer come up with this idea. We implemented it, and there's huge cost savings because of the consistent source of heat. Wood-burning appliances were one of the contributing factors for erratic temperature chains. Erratic temperature chains caused moisture buildup in the home. That was another change in using wood doors instead of hollow corridors. Wood doors actually were the more durable. Louvered closets, more durable. The trim for the home was wood. That's a concept that I developed for my own home, but my home is mostly wood because it manages moisture well. The vinyl siding we got rid of simply because the book that Canada writes, Underwriters Laboratories of Canada, says in the booklet, vinyl siding not deemed suitable for the West Coast of BC. And nobody knows that. (laughs) It was pointed out to me by my manager. I said, holy, I said, end of story. I said, I'm changing that. So... I love it. And I think one of the things I'm really excited about this booklet that you've developed, it really is a collection of everything that you've learned in your career, but it also incorporates energy step code. It also builds in uh, kind of the best building science. So can you tell us a little bit more about the booklet, what's in it, and how could it be adapted for other regions of the province? The booklet has um, the type of materials and the application of materials. The booklet tells you to think of four things, drainage, deflection, durability, drying, or building signs. The booklet tells you to use materials that are most suited for your region. Triple pane windows, LED lighting, uh, designed heating systems, all the things that complement the step code. The booklet tells you how to prevent air infiltration by enclosing your exterior outlets with plastic caulking taping. The booklet will tell you how to apply insulation in the crawl space. The booklet will also show you three-dimensional photographs of, of what should be done. And the booklet will tell you how to properly install windows and create that air tightness. I think the best part of it, it's easy to understand and it can be easily developed to suit your needs. Not my needs on the West Coast, your specific needs. I think that's great. 
looking at the homes in our own community, learning from them and, and kind of learning what not to do. <laughs> I, I always say to um, uh, organizations or people, I said, why are you doing the same things you did 20 years ago? We know they're not working. Let's do something different. And by doing something different for our first people is doing your part, getting education, getting to learn how to build your own, suit your needs and taking ownership of it. You know, it's a lot of compounded issues in the past hundred years that we struggled with, but hey, let's move forward. That's what I'm saying. And here's an opportunity in the housing park and the booklet. The homes that we are looking at are designed with a formula. There's standard size window openings, standard size door openings, standard size room sizes to minimize waste are in this booklet. So it's very exciting that there's an opportunity to get this out there because most people don't have the skill or know the things that I know today after 35 years of being the builder and inspector in BC. And you've now built some homes using this best practices booklet that you've developed. Can you tell us how are those homes doing and how much did they cost to build and how much do they cost to operate? When we started training our guys, we, we brought the carpentry program in here. Then with the guys, we started to find their strengths and motivate them forward in the trades. And we find their weakness and help them through that. And then so when we started to see the cream of the crop rise, we brought them to site. We trained them. I said, this is your job. This is your responsibility. You delegate this type of work. Each, each person on site knew what his job was. When they all came together in rhythm, they were building those houses at $110 a square foot. From the commercial aspect, we're building up from $160 to $190 a square foot, where before it was costing us $350 a square foot. That's amazing. The operation cost of these homes were $12 to $17 per day because of air leakage, because of your heating systems. Because of the design of the home, now we're running a building today, it's 36 by 60, which is 2,200 square feet at $1.50 a day. And that's got to make it so much more affordable for the people that then live in those homes. Yes, and it complements your economics of this community also, because the price of material, the price of food is high. In most communities I've seen, because of their isolation, the costs were horrific. Bank around in some communities that are building a $350, $400 a square foot. So little boxes that were not even close to what we're building today. But it's affordable. That's the key. It's economical. It's sustainable. It meets your cultural needs. Simple as that. If you were to kind of share some wisdom with other folks in similar positions that are maybe looking to develop their own best practices for their community, what would you share with them? Well, the bucket for sure. I would tell you to have your own people build these houses because that instills the pride that they need to look after them and manage them. I would say to others that when you build capacity and support capacity, you create some economic stimulation throughout, also cost savings. And by utilizing your resources, for us, we have a gravel pit, so we want to make our own concrete. We have a mill that produces our lumber, creates our trim, creates the material, the posts and beams that we need. So that's all creates jobs for this community. And the value added in that, we also sell our products to other nations to support the program that we have here. Today, I think when I started investing our own, I moved into that office, there was only three or four of us working. 
when I left that office, I had 52 people working for me because of this. And today we're starting to fire up again. So I continue to work with nations. So I continue to work with the people. And I continue to work with organizations like yourself, Fraser Basin Council, BC Hydro, ECIT, to get this information out there. I would tell people, take ownership. Take the risk to invest in your own and keep the politics out of it. One last question for you, Richard. And I know we were talking about maybe there's another iteration of your booklet that will come one day about kind of the next step of evolving our homes to include spaces for cultural practices. And again, some of those cultural practices, you know, as you mentioned, tanning hides or processing your, your salmon catch, they're industrial processes almost, and our homes aren't really built for them. So what do you see as the next iteration of this booklet to, to kind of adopt and allow our homes to do more of those those cultural practices? Well, the normal home on the West Coastal home, the kitchens aren't designed to manage all that moisture. And so it is common for me to be on the West Coast investigating a community on the West Coast, and it was common for me to see them boiling water processing salmon, which is their lifestyle, cultural lifestyle, or an in interior that's common for me to go in the interior, they're piling their wood in the basement to get it dry, or tanning a hide in the basement where there's a lot of moisture involved. The buildings aren't designed for that. So the next part of this booklet, I'm working with an organization to develop the cultural component of the building, which would be considered an unconditioned space, whereas it has the uh, amenities of water, of heat, and appliances that can manage the moisture properly. So you don't have to use your kitchen. And you can use that space to hang your moose because it's unconditioned. Air will circulate. Whatever the climate is outside will be inside the space, but it'll be built for that purpose only. So that'll be a huge next part of the booklet. But again, part of that is using your natural resource like a post and beam feature, where it's not really conventional framing. So it's more unconditioned, less cost, does a better job of protecting your, your home from all the other moisture that you've been doing in the past. So smart. And I think so important to invest in those amenities to make our homes so much better for those cultural practices and, and to help our families engage in those cultural practices and pass them on. It's so important. We have to um, instill that in our youth today because we are the people of the land and the resources as always taking care of us. That's the hardest work I do is changing their perception, what their role is to the home, what their responsibility is to the home. That is a disconnect that happened through the past traumas of the years with first people. So with my um, work today, I work with the school and I work with organizations to create videos and put into the education system for the children to learn. And I think we have to continue to do this until we reconnect the adult to the children and children to the adult and the roles and responsibilities to a home. That's important because we can build the most fabulous home, but if we don't educate them, educate ourselves about the home. It's going to be a cycle that could be very vicious. And I saw that in many places because it is what it is from past traumas. And Canada knows that today. I can see, again, how you're bringing together so many different threads to weave this yeah. tapestry. It's, it's not just a home. It's, it's so integral yeah. to how our communities can grow and heal. But today, uh, we have an opportunity to move forward. We have another opportunity to fully engage in building our own. And that's a key that everybody has to recognize 
in this world today. If we all do our part, we'll get what we want for everybody. And my work was not only on the communities of First People, but on and off reserves throughout BC. And I saw many, many, many various cultural lifestyles of other peoples, how they manage their homes in Wasota. Same challenges in different capacities all over. So this template is just a stepping stone that they can use. What I learned today, I'm passing forward. That was my interview with Richard Hall of the Minnesota Nation. For links to the residential construction specification guide for the wet west coast that Richard worked to develop, or the video about the Nooksalk Apprenticeship Program we discussed, visit the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Safe podcast website. Or you can go straight to the coastalfirstnations.ca website and search Ultra Energy Efficient Homes to find out about this and other great initiatives they're working on. I hope you found this inspiring and informative. I certainly did. And I hope it might have given you a few new ideas about how you can approach your work and energy efficient housing in your community. For more information on the Home Energy Save program, or to download the next podcast in this series, please visit Fraser Basin Council's website and the First Nations Home Energy Save webpage. You'll find there a companion resource for this podcast, along with links to incentive programs and resources available to Indigenous communities in British Columbia. You can also sign up for their newsletter to learn about new training opportunities and support programs. This podcast has been developed by SES Consulting as part of the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Save program. The program is sponsored by the Province of British Columbia, BC Hydro, Fortis BC, and the Real Estate Foundation of British Columbia. Production by Aaron Trazo of Bird Media.